Well, good morning once again. It is great to be with you all here. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be in our Bibles in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you do not have a Bible, do not be dismayed. We have some in the back. If you just put your hand up, our ushers will bring them to you. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible and where this thing called Matthew is, there should be a table of contents towards the front of your Bible to help you find there. And then we are going to be in chapter 16, big number 16, little number 13. But that's in just a moment. In 1978, there's a a country music legend named John Conley. People, anyone familiar with him? Released a song called Rose-Colored Glasses. Anybody familiar with this song? It's a song about a man who's in a, in a relationship, and it is bad. And this person is no good and just keeps, uh, keeps on uh, hurting him and, and doing bad things toward him. But he's, he's in it because, well, here's the chorus. He says, but these rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through show only the beauty because they hide all the truth. And the idea here is that he stays. Now, Mr. Conley didn't invent the term rose-colored glasses, but he does epitomize how we have this choice. Sometimes we choose to distort our own reality by choosing to look at it in a different light, seeing only the positive and none of the negative. If you're not familiar with Conley, maybe you're familiar with a a recent remake of a movie called A Star is Born with the uh, Lady Gaga that is in there. But there's a similar idea in this movie as well, that she's stuck in this relationship and it's, it's not healthy, but like she sings in one of the, the title songs, La Vie en Rose, she sees him through these rose-colored glasses too. Because apparently pink makes things just look better than they really are. <laughs> well, that's pink glasses. I want to talk for a moment about a different sort of color of glasses. How many of you remember as a kid, or maybe for your own children, kind of like decoder spy glasses? They usually were red and flimsy, and what they allowed you to do is to see a a secret picture or or a secret message that was there. The glasses didn't hide reality. They, They actually enhanced it so you could see something that you were missing. Well, in our scripture this morning, Jesus is going to do some lens correcting. He wants to make sure that your view of Christ and the church and what it means to be a Christian lines up with reality, not only so that it's accurate how you think it should be seen, but that you'll actually see what you've been missing. And the big idea for this morning, the thing I hope you walk away with here remembering is that the cross defines our view of Christ, the church, and the Christian. The cross defines our view of Christ, the church, and the Christian. Or in other words, there is no Christ, and there is no church, and there is no Christian without the cross. Well, let's get into Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There's a 
TV show that's on right now and apparently seems to be popular. It's called The Masked Singer. Anybody seen that? It, it's a celebrity singing show and people are voted off and stuff, but, but the key twist in this show is that you have no idea who the people are. From head to toe, they are covered in elaborate costumes and these giant masks, and they sing while doing that. And the only way you find out who they are is if they're voted off, and then they get revealed. Well, in sort of a first century version of this, Jesus has been quiet about his true identity. And he's just been leaving little clues through his teachings and the miracles that he performs. And while everyone else has something to say about who he might be, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus neither confirms nor denies their claims. Instead, Jesus has sort of taken on this mask or this mysterious title of the Son of Man. Now, it has its Old Testament roots. It's found in the book of Daniel, but it's still, it's vague enough, it's unknown enough that he allows other people to sort of fill in the blanks. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, meaning that the crowds tended to think of Jesus as some sort of God-sent prophetic voice, but they still don't really know who he is. So then Jesus asks a different question. He says, well, who do you say that I am? That's a really important question. In fact, I would say it's the the fundamental question question that distinguishes Christianity from the rest of the world religions. And it's a question that demands a personal response. Who do you say that Jesus is? Inside your notes, there's a little box uh, if you flip open your notes to the growth group questions where we've asked you to write out your own answer to this question, to list at least five descriptions or titles that represent your core understanding of Jesus. In fact, we have time. Why don't you take 30 seconds right now, if you have something to write with, and just start jotting down. What are are the first five things you think of when you think of who Jesus is? I'm not going to call on you to answer in case you're worried about that. I'd encourage you, if you're not in a growth group or you are, but but find someone after the service. Share with them. Hey, this is what I wrote down. Uh, What did you write down? Um, And as you can see from the rest of the questions there, it's an essential part of our discussion. But back to our passage, when Jesus asks his disciples, Peter speaks up as the spokesperson of the whole group, and he gives a two-part answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and in the first century, this was a title of expectation and hope, because Israel was a subjugated people awaiting a human deliverer to free them and to restore their nation to its former glory. To call him the Christ is to call Jesus the long-expected deliverer king that the scriptures have foretold. It's a very loaded word and title. And then Peter adds this, he says, the son of the living God, speaking to the fact that Jesus has a relationship with the God of Israel unlike anyone else in history, that God has marked him in a way that no one else has been before. Now, because we've kind of gotten to know Peter pretty well and the disciples through our journey through Matthew, I do have to imagine that as soon as the words came flying out of Peter's mouth, 
that Jesus just paused and kind of let him hang there. And Peter's probably starting to freak out a little bit, wondering, oh, did I get it right? Is he going to give me one of those, oh, ye of little faith type comments again that I keep getting? Or maybe he's starting to doubt it. Is he ever going to say anything at all? But then finally Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. You got it right. I mean, what a great moment for Peter. Here are the right claims to make about Jesus. The, the mask has been pulled off, and inside, yes, he is the Christ after all. Now, it'll be clear in a moment that this is not an exhaustive understanding of Jesus' identity, but it is a true understanding. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that Peter, he wasn't necessarily clever enough. He didn't arrive at the truth on his own, but it says his Father in heaven revealed it to him. Meaning Peter was able to make a bold statement about Christ's true identity because God had opened his eyes to see the truth. Uh, preparing for our Cuba missions trip, we did some evangelism training. One of the important things to remember when sharing the good news about Jesus with others is that we want to be as winsome as we can, we want to be as kind as we can, we want to be as knowledgeable about the gospel and the Bible as we can, but ultimately we are depending upon God's Spirit to open eyes and open minds and open hearts to receive the truth. And what is that truth? Well, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we read this in our Bibles, it is really calling on us to believe this truth about Jesus too. He's the one. He's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He is the rescuer. And this good confession of who Christ is is then leads us to something even more, a confession from Christ about the church. Pick it back up in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, or let loose, release, shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We move from Peter's exalted confession of Jesus as the Christ to what ends up being an exalted confession, not just of Peter, though we will get to that, but to what is Jesus' first mention of this little thing we call the church. And so there's four important truths about the church that we shouldn't miss. The first one is this, that the church is built and owned by Jesus. I think the most important statement of this section is found right in the middle of verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. Who's building it? Jesus. Who does it belong to? Jesus. And what is he building? He's building this new gathering or community of people, the church, people that belong to Jesus and are brought together by Jesus for his purposes. I think remembering that it is Jesus' church and his work first and foremost will help to temper our critiques, but also our self-congratulations. And it should excite us to join in the work he's doing. The church is built and owned by Jesus. Second truth about the church is that the church is built upon confessors. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What Jesus is doing here is he's doing a little play with words, with Simon's nickname, Peter, which means rock. 
So you could read it actually like this. And I tell you, you are a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. On the face of it, Jesus is saying that Peter, a.k.a. Mr. Rock, will have a foundational role in the start of this new community that Jesus is building. And in the book of Acts, we certainly see that he does. However, we don't just want to look at who is named, but the context of what Peter was in that moment. You see, Jesus didn't simply make the pronouncement on just Peter kind of out of thin air, but because of what had just happened. Peter had made a right confession about Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is building his church on confessors, making true confessions about Christ. And he starts with Peter because Peter is the one who makes it first. It begins with Peter, but it's not limited to Peter. Rather, it's limited to those who make right confessions about Christ the apostles and the prophets that Ephesians 2.20 talks about, and then those who continue to believe what the apostles taught. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter, he would later write, all those in Christ are living stones being built up into a spiritual house of which he calls Jesus the cornerstone. Jesus wasn't first, Jesus was essential, but Peter was part of the beginning. So the church is built upon confessors. The third truth is this, that the church will endure. Here, my Bible says, and the gates of hell, but it's got a little note there. It says, well, actually, Hades, that was the, the Greek word. And, and, and Hades, and our conception of it, should be different than what we think of as hell. Hell, very specifically, is this place of eternal torment for first Satan and his demons, and then those who do not believe and follow Christ in faith. But Hades was this idea of the place of death, really as a way of talking about the dead. And it says Hades will not prevail against it. Roughly this little part, what it means is that the death, death can't swallow up the church. Death cannot overpower it. Jesus' church will operate in the face of death, but never destroyed, enduring until he returns. The church will endure. The fourth truth about the church is that the church has heavenly authority. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, if we were to ask in this scenario right now, where we're at in the scriptures, who's the person who has heavenly authority? Well, that's Jesus. And we've actually seen him exercise it in a very particular way. He has approved Peter's confession and then approved Peter as part of his church. And giving the, Peter the keys, Jesus is extending his authority to Peter. And by chapter 18 of Matthew, at least, this authority is given to the rest of the apostles and then through the scriptures, by extension, the local church. So that the church will be Jesus's representatives on earth to approve what must be confessed and affirm those who confess it. And I recognize a lot of this, keys of the kingdom and the power and this, it, it sounds a little confusing. But in, it's pretty simple in practice. The church is responsible to maintain a correct statement of faith and teaching, as well as to admit and retain people in the church through baptism and things like membership and church discipline. 
In this way, the the church can give a public witness of the gospel to the world by protecting the gospel through right confession and affirming the true confessors, those who publicly represent Jesus on earth. It's not saying that the church decides salvation, but it's saying that when it sees salvation, it affirms it and says, let's continue and grow in this together. So what do we have here? Well, the church is built and owned by Jesus upon confessors, and it will endure and has been given the heavenly authority to protect and continue its growth. Those are some pretty lofty claims about this gathering that we see on a regular basis, isn't it? I mean, how do those match up with your view of the church? For a lot of people, the church is just something I go to kind of regularly, and, and sometimes this one, and sometimes the one down the street, and depending on who's preaching or what the music's going to be like, and whether or not I commit to it, does it really matter? Well, I don't really expect to change your mind on the church this morning, but I do hope to expand your view of it. Uh, even if you just grasp onto one of those truths, I would pick it to be the first one, that each local true church belongs to Jesus. To remember that, and that if He's building it, wouldn't you want to be part of it in a little more significant way? Well, Jesus ends this section in verse 20, and He ends it kind of abruptly and unexpectedly. He tells the disciples not to tell anyone else that He's the Christ. I have to think for them, they've kind of been waiting for this moment, this waiting for this moment for Jesus to reveal himself, and then to not tell anyone? That'd be kind of heartbreaking. All their hopes have been finally confirmed, and they don't get to tell a single soul about it. You remember being a kid, and there was uh, three words when you were about to go do something with your friends down the street, or play baseball, or hop on a bike or something, that you just dreaded hearing, and there's these words, not so fast right? Those are parental words right there, if there ever was. All right, you, you got to change your clothes. You, you got to eat something first. You, did you do your chores? How's your homework? Not so fast. Because while kids just want to live in the moment, parents are awesome at remembering all the prereqs, all the prerequisites for what you want to do. But sometimes it's not just what you need to do first. Sometimes it's something you need to know. We have this kid's book uh, where this little bear keeps running off to do things, fishing and climbing trees, you know, typical little bear stuff. And each time he goes to run off, his mom starts to say, but he gets out of earshot, and she says, there's something you ought to know. And inevitably, he goes and kind of fails and gets hurt trying to do his thing, and then she shares her motherly bear wisdom, and then he does it well, and he has a good time. Well, Peter's raised up this exalted confession of Christ. Christ, in turn, has confessed these wonderful truths to Peter about the nature and role of the church, and I have to imagine they're feeling ready to just get out there and proclaim it to make it known, make it happen, not so fast. There's something you ought to know. See, you can't really understand what kind of Christ He is or what kind of church we're supposed to be without an understanding of the cross, which is our next section. Let's continue to read verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It starts with saying from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. This means Jesus is starting to let him in on something new. He's centering them in on the full plan that is by his suffering and his death and his resurrection, that is how he is being the Christ. And they can't handle it. I mean, Peter actually takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Never, Lord, not going to happen. What are you thinking? That's the kind of language that he has here. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. That's, that's harsh. I mean, can you imagine what that would feel like to go from, Jesus said I'm the rock upon which he's building his church. He gave me the keys of the kingdom, and then he, then he called me Satan. It kind of came quick. And then Jesus takes it further. He actually makes it kind of personal on, on Peter's name. He says, you're not acting like the rock that's the foundation. You're acting like a rock that's a stumbling block. So what happens? I believe it's because he didn't have the right glasses on. See, Peter isn't seeing what God sees, only what man sees. In fact, his thinking, his suggestion is more like what Satan tempted Jesus with in Matthew 4 in the desert. Hey, you want the crown? You want the world? Skip the suffering. Skip the cross. So he's being like Satan in this way. There's a scholar, A.B. Bruce, he says this, says, none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than for our character. What Peter had was the lie, but the truth was this, there is no Christ without the cross. Because the real problem Israel and all of mankind was facing wasn't poverty, it wasn't disease, not even being subject to the Roman superpower. The real and great problem was mankind's own sin separating it from a holy God. And the problem, it couldn't be fixed with good teaching. It couldn't be fixed with a moral example or healings or free food or even raising an army. It could only be fixed by the God-man, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life and then dying as a sacrifice for our sin, and then rising again to prove that God accepted what he did. There's a lot of people who think that Jesus without a cross is a pretty good idea, because when you have Jesus without the cross, you get to downplay sin. You get to downplay the whole supernatural resurrection thing. You get to downplay his deity, that he is God. You get to downplay what proves that the scriptures are worth reading and looking at. But Jesus is very clear about things. He must go. Without the cross, there's no rescue. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness of sin. Without the cross, there is no Christ. And so for ourselves, as we're reading this, we need to not only believe that he is the divine Messiah with a message, but he was a sacrifice. 
because we sin. There's no Christ without the cross. But Jesus doesn't stop there. So you think the church has power and authority, not so fast. There's something you want to know. There is no church without a cross. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, according to Jesus, the cross is what shapes this discipleship community called the church. Jesus is making sure that they and we understand that the very followers who, who make up the church, who have the keys of the kingdom, are actively forsaking their own will, their own plan, their own ambitions for the sake of God's. And why is that important? Well, think about it. With, without the cross, the church is liable to wield its power and its authority for its own sake. I mean, this has been a part of the uh, corruption that the church has always had to fight against. And we see this today, especially in certain movements like the so-called prosperity gospel or in sects where there's just domineering legalism. We also see it in churches that act as cover-ups for abuse or props for pastoral celebrity. But Jesus has a very different picture of the church. He gives it power, yes, but it's tempered and directed because it is a gathering of people who have made Christ's priorities their priorities, who make the cross the shape by which their mission is focused and sacrifice the means to moving it forward, built not on their goodness, but our common need for redemption and continual forgiveness. But he goes on, it's not just the church as a community Jesus dials it down to the personal level. It's not just no church without a cross. There is no Christian without a cross. Look at verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I think I know what everyone's thinking after we read that passage because it's the thoughts I have as well. Those are really, really tough words. Deny yourself. To, to reject my natural desire of what I want for me and my life. To reject my selfishness and my self-seeking to take up your cross, to accept God's desire for my life, wherever that might be, whatever the cost, and to follow Jesus, to daily put that into practice, to make it the continual pattern of my life. I just want to say, I look at these words of Christ and I say, I am failing this. I am. I, I've had time to think. I've time to prep. I know when I'm going to be preaching on something ahead of time. So I had a, at least a couple of weeks here where I could have, you know, figured out how to live this out and come back with a story of how I really exemplified this sort of idea. Instead, I have a very different type of story to share. Uh, Thursday night, at the end of the night, I lightly crunched the corner, back corner of our minivan in a parking garage. 
The good news was there's no damage to the other guy. Uh, the bad news was the other guy was a concrete pillar. Um, <laughs> but the car wasn't the problem. The problem was that I, I let it just get into my head. I was so bummed, even though it was a small thing. I was so bummed. It started to ruin what had been a great day. And the next day, when I was supposed to work on my sermon, continue to work on it, I was just, I was just down. Do you know how hard it is to write a sermon on self-denial when you are feeling sorry for yourself? <laughs> yeah, go figure. Because really, that's the problem. I'm just constantly thinking about myself, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's about me. I'm full of myself, my thoughts, and my interests, and my desires, and my plans. Problem is, you might be too. I mean, let me ask you this. When was the last time you made a choice, not according to what you wanted, or according to what would increase your comfort or status of some sort, but because you thought it was what God wanted you to do. I don't mean made a choice to put your kids before yourself, because even sometimes here in Orange County, sacrificial parenting is sort of a mark of status. I'm also not talking about doing things that are hard just because they are hard, but I'm talking about an honest reading of what Jesus has said and an honest evaluation of ourselves to say, Am I following Jesus as he really is and what he really wants of me? And Jesus gives us a picture of the alternative. He says the alternative is actually this. It's actually a life more concerned with me, chasing after what the world offers, my success and my pleasure and my riches and my honor and my family and my legacy. And when it's all said and done, he says, you could have been the best at it. You could have gotten the most. You could have gained everything, and you'll lose out on your soul. And he makes it clear, in case you already didn't know, he says, that's not a good trade. So where do we begin? Or you might be wondering, is it too late? Well, when it came down to Peter's chance, you know, the rock himself, he actually said no to the cross. Three times he chose not to deny himself, but to deny Christ, to make sure he didn't have to take up his cross, to not follow Jesus. Maybe you feel like you've missed your opportunity too. Maybe you've, you, you've compromised or you said no to Jesus for a moment in order to hang on to your own stuff or to hang on certain relationships you want or your favorite sin or just your own skin. But just as Peter got another chance, just as he returned to Jesus and found forgiveness and restoration, you can too. And it begins with repentance. A word we use here that means admitting your failure to follow, your failure to take up your cross, your failure to deny yourself. And then you ask for forgiveness, and Jesus is faithful to extend that grace. And then you ask the Spirit of God to give me the strength today to say no to my will and to be open and to actually love, God, your will. 
and to do that every single day. Are you with me on that? Are you ready to surrender? It's your will for His. It's your dreams for His. It's your concerns for His. It's yourself for Him. I hope so, uh, because the final verse reminds us, the final verses remind us that the cross, while it is the shape of our Savior and His church in our lives, we need to remember the cross is not the end. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. See, Jesus rose again from the dead, just as He promised, and He's seated right at the right hand of the Father, and He will return to judge us according to our lives. Think of your own. Has it been spent surrendered to Him in faith or grasping after what you could? To fulfill yourself. You know, this passage has some pretty strong challenges to accept, choices to be made. If you're not a follower of Christ, the, the first part is to stop and think about, well, what do I think about Jesus? Who, who do I say that He is? And if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, think about how, how do I relate to the church that He owns builds and operates? And am I really ready to take up my cross? See, you don't need to see the world through rose-colored lenses. You don't even need spy glasses to find the secret messages. What you need is to see Christ and His church and even ourselves through the cross. Because without it, everything else is nothing. Father God, we thank you for the difficult but true words found in this passage. They convict us to the core, and, and, and Lord, they could leave us in a place of, of being down and coincidentally still just focused on ourselves, how we don't measure up. But Lord, even that, your grace brings us freedom. You can release us from our sin of selfishness, you have paid for it by your blood. You can set us on a new path and your spirit is there ready to help move us forward, to take us further into it. Lord, we want to lift up the prayer of Psalm 143 verse 10 that says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Lord, that we might be as Paul exemplified in Philippians 3 where he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let that be our prayer. Help us take another step in that direction. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.